So Mark chapter 10. In verses 13 through 16. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. And he said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms, and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. It's a pretty amazing story. Now I want to start out this morning by asking you a question, and it may seem like a really dumb question, because we're at church, right? And we're Americans, and we have assumptions about what the Bible says, and about who God is, and about what he's like. So this may sound like a dumb question, but I want to ask you to indulge me for a second and really think about this. Here goes. What do you think God is like? What do you think God's like? That's a question that I don't think people think about enough. Or if they do, they're led down this hopeless rabbit hole. Uh, where they never emerge, or if they do, it's, it's with the wrong view. See, I talk to people all the time. I'm a church planner, and I'm an evangelist. So I talk to people all the time who are not Christians, who don't profess to be. And I also talk to people who think they're Christians. And this conversation always comes up, what is God like? Is he high and lofty and majestic and transcendent, just so far above us and away from us? Is he holy and just and demanding and impatient and intolerant. Is that what you conceive in your mind when you think of God? That's an important answer. A.W. Tozer said the thing that comes into your mind when you think of God is the most important thing in the world. Is he mighty and powerful? Is he transcendent and holy? Or is he just a dude like us? He's happy-go-lucky. He's laid back. He's mild-mannered, take-it-or-leave-it kind of guy, nonchalant, doesn't really care. I would say this as a pastor and as a Christian, my experience has been this. Because we're made in God's image and we have a conscience and, and we have a knowledge of God, even though it's marred and distorted a little bit, I think we struggle with the first view. That there is a God and, and if he could be represented by a person, I would say this. Most people have the same view of God that they have of an old grumpy librarian. Right? Anybody ever encountered an old grumpy librarian? Um, don't talk. Don't touch anything. Be quiet. Don't have fun, don't laugh, don't run, get off the grass, shh, be quiet. That's kind, of the view, that's kind of the view they have of God. They think God is like that. And really, I could boil it down to one sentence, that God doesn't want you. <laughs> when we moved into our house where we live in Deland about two and a half years ago, instantly our neighbor came over. She was an older lady. She was divorced. She was very lonely. And she had some bitterness in, in her life and we befriended her and, and I asked her one day I said hey listen can I pray for you and she laughed now it wasn't a kind of a scorning mockery kind of laugh she laughed and she said huh she said God I annoy God she said I bother God God doesn't want to hear anything I have to say and she really meant that that's the tragedy is that she really believed that about God that God didn't have any time for her that's what she thought she probably still thinks that and I think a lot of people are with her. They had kind of the same view of God that God is irritated by them. 
that he doesn't have time for them. He doesn't really want to be bothered. God's busy saving the world and keeping our universe held together, and he really doesn't have time, right? A lot of people have that view of God. That's why I love this story, and I especially love Mark's version. You know, there's four different accounts of the life of Jesus in the Bible and the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And sometimes they all write about the same thing that happened, just from different angles. And Mark wrote about this story, and his version, I think, is, is the best because he included Jesus was angry. Now, I want to ask you a question. <laughs> when you envision Jesus in your mind, can you see him being indignant and angry and really hacked? I mean, there's only three or four times we ever read about Jesus being angry in the New Testament. And man, when I read those stories, my attention is, is peaked. My interest is peaked. I want to know, okay... Something happened here that made Jesus angry, and he never got angry uh, for a reason that wasn't just. So what is it? Something made Jesus really irate here, and here's what it was. Jesus was being misrepresented by his disciples. It was by the religious people. They were telling lies by their actions about what God was like. Now, what did Jesus come to do? The Bible says that Jesus came to show us what God is like. Wouldn't you agree with that? He came to show us. In fact, he said to the disciples, he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Now, he wasn't saying he was the Father. That'd be heresy. He was saying, I'm representing the Father, and this is what God is like. And listen, it blew everyone's lid. <laughs> Nobody could fathom that this, is this really what God is like? Hanging out with sinners, eating with tax collectors, showing love, unconditional love to harlots and prostitutes. The worst of sinners in that day and age and culture. It blew their mind. That's why the religious people could not accept Jesus. So I love Mark's gospel because did you know this? Mark was writing to a predominantly Roman Gentile audience. And they were drunk with power. They loved glory and power and might and strength and authority. And so Mark's gospel is filled with all these proofs that Jesus was the Son of God because Mark records the miracles Jesus silencing a storm. Waves and wind just vanished, went away to a dead calm. He cast out demons. Uh, Jesus had authority over death, over demons, over disease, over disaster. And Mark's gospel really highlights that and features that. And then you come to this and you scratch your head. You're like, what? Why would Mark include this? Jesus holding little children. I mean, honestly, when you picture God in your mind, do you see him laughing and smiling and little kids running and knocking him over into the grass and him embracing them? That's what happened here. It actually says he received them and took them up and he blessed them. And the word in Greek has a, a preposition attached to the front of it, which intensifies it. It means Jesus super blessed these children. He super received them. He, he couldn't wait for them to come to him. And you've and you got to see that and scratch your head and think, what in the world is that doing in Mark's gospel? He was writing to people that wanted to see power and glory and strength and might and authority. And then there's this, God with children. What in the world? Well, I would submit to you this. Even though the Romans and the Gentiles in that day and age, they were power hungry and they wanted might and authority, but they were also human beings, just like we are. And listen, if there's this God out there who's so mighty and transcendent, and powerful and he can do anything and he has control and he's sovereign and he's a king but if we don't know that he cares about us and that he loves us and wants us then what good is he 
right? That's what Mark is after. He wants to show us. In fact, this is a little bit of myth busting that Mark's doing here. He's blowing all these myths out of the water about what God is like and how he treats sinners. Because I got to be honest with you, first century Palestine was a lot like the West today. You know, children aren't particularly held in high esteem in America. I mean, there's some exceptions, I know, but we're, we're pregnant with our sixth child, okay? Sarah's great with child. Somebody asked her earlier if she's eating watermelons because <laughs> she looks like she has a watermelon in her stomach. And so she's out and about and people say, oh, it's, it's, it's a pretty safe uh, bet with Sarah that she's pregnant, you know. <laughs> they say, oh, you're pregnant. Um, you know, how, is this your first? And she says, no, this is actually my sixth. And if they're drinking coffee, sometimes they'll spit it out, you know, or choke on whatever they're eating. Um, you know, they don't say, oh, that's wonderful. That's great. What a blessing. Somebody even said to her the other day, uh, if you're trying to have friends for your other kids, you know, that's what dogs are for, right? Um, and, and you chuckle and you laugh, and, and I do too because it's funny, but children aren't really held in high esteem in America. And I'm not saying you have to have a whole bunch of kids or I'm not making a statement about that. I'm just saying first century Palestine, kids were seen as an intrusion. They were to be seen but not heard. Stay out of the way, and eventually when you become an adult, age 12 and 13 as a Jew, you'll be able to make a contribution to society. You'll be able to be my employee and work the field, keep the sheep, keep the flock, and make something of yourself. But until then, stay out of the way. You annoy people. You bother people. So that's exactly why the disciples had the view they had of children during that day. Listen, they thought they were like Jesus' bodyguards, and they were protecting access to him. In the words in Greek in this passage, it says that people kept bringing children and the disciples kept rebuking them, saying, no way, Jesus can't see you. He's busy. He's tired. He doesn't have time for you. He doesn't want you. And Mark is blowing this out of the water because you know what Jesus' reaction was to that? He got angry. He said, don't you dare, don't you dare throw up a barrier for people, especially children, to come to me. You're telling lies about what God is like. And so Jesus rebuked, that's a strong word in Greek, he rebuked his disciples. It's the same word used when demons are rebuked, okay? Because they were acting demonic by keeping people from coming to God. And by the way, the other instance when Jesus got angry, you may remember, it's in the second chapter of John's Gospel. And Jesus walked into the temple, which was to be a place of prayer for all the nations to come and find God, and what had they done to it? You remember? They turned it into a business, into a market. They were changing money there, changing coins, selling sheep, sacrificial animals, and Jesus got angry, and he went and made a whip and drove them out of there, and he said, do not make my father's house into a den of thieves. So both times that Jesus got angry, it was because people were misrepresenting him. He said, this is not what my father is like. This is not what church is supposed to be like. And so Jesus rebuked them then. So the disciples were telling lies that it's, it's hard to get access to, to, to God, right? That was the lie they were telling. That's why he rebuked them. So children were seen as kind of the bottom of the ladder in that day. Nobody had time for them. They were to be seen but not heard. And Jesus turned that on its head and he said, no, in fact, the kingdom of God is like these little children here. Now, what did he mean by that? Because listen, there's some things that children represent that aren't so good, right? Sometimes they're selfish, right? I mean, I've got five and one on the way, so I could talk about this for a while. But I think what Jesus had in mind here when he said the kingdom of God is such as these, he's talking about, one, their dependency. Children are dependent, and they know that. 
If I could count all the times I hear the word daddy every day, or maybe given a dime or a nickel, I'd be a millionaire. I could retire right now. Daddy, 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 mommy, mommy, mommy. Children are dependent, right? And children are always expectant too. And here's what I mean by that. If a four-year-old walks into the room and wants to tell you something, um, in their mind they're assuming you care and that it's very important what they're about to tell you and that you're interested. If you don't believe me, go volunteer to teach children that age and say, does anybody have any questions? And boy, do they raise their hand and, you know, hey, teacher, sometimes I throw up. Hey, I caught a frog yesterday. It's got nothing to do with what you're trying to teach, but they genuinely think you're interested. So there's that expectation, that innocent expectation that they have. And Jesus is saying that's what the kingdom of heaven is supposed to be like. Um, See, what children don't do really good is pretend. God doesn't like that. God doesn't like it when we posture ourselves and position ourselves and put on a mask and be pretensive. And and kids weren't like that. And that's why Jesus said, get out of the way and let them come to me. And they did. And he blew out of the water um, people's false understandings of what God is like. Because listen, God loves you and God cares about you and God wants you to come to him. And listen, he draws near. The Bible says that Jesus draws near sinners. If that's hard for you to say that out loud, it probably means you really struggle with this accurate view of what God is like. Jesus draws near sinners. They don't annoy him. They don't weary him. They don't exhaust him. In fact, you know what the only thing the Bible says that wearies and exhausts God? You know what it says? It's people who pretend, religious people who pretend. Over and over in the Old Testament, God said, I am wearied by your feast and your festivals and your fastings. They mean nothing to me because your heart is not in it. And little children aren't really like that, are they? Let me ask you another question. What do you think drew children to Jesus? They were obviously attracted in the right kind of way to Jesus. Why? Because they knew he cared for them. They knew he had unconditional love and affection for them. Somehow they felt warmth and receptivity to him. They wanted to be around him. He gave them time. You know, Jesus didn't give them money. He didn't promise them a front row seat at the next synagogue talk that he gave. You know what Jesus gave them? The thing that that people care the most about, attention and affection. He gave them time. I have a little boy who loves to fish. I mean, he loves to fish. That's his favorite thing in the world to do. He gets home from school every day and he drops his backpack. Sometimes he doesn't even take the time to change out of his school uniform. He gets his fishing rod and down he goes to the pond. And he's always begging me, Daddy, fish with me. Daddy, fish with me. And of course, I don't get home till after five and it's Florida and it's hot and my skin's really sensitive to the sun. So I'm not always really excited to go fish with my son. But one day he kept on, he kept on and I said, all right, I'm going to go fishing with you. So we went to the little pond in our neighborhood and It was in the late afternoon, the sun was going down, there was a cool breeze. We cast in his rod and we lay down on the bank there and my son put his arm around my back and he said, Daddy, this is the best day of my life. And what did I do? I didn't didn't give him anything but myself. That's all I gave him. I gave him myself, undistracted, undivided attention. I'm here and I care about you in this moment right now and I wanna be with you and I'm not annoyed by you This is exactly where I want to be. You're the person I care the most about right now. 
And he said it was the best day of his life. And you know what? Jesus is a lot like that, except I was imperfectly. You know, obviously I'm a sinner. But Jesus, uh, he's not like that. Jesus welcomes you. There's unconditional love. And you have to ask yourself, how's that so? How can, how can Jesus welcome children? How can Jesus welcome sinners? Because we, the other things that we said we know God is like, he is holy. He is transcendent. He is just. The Bible says he cannot look upon sin. So these things seem to be paradoxes, don't they? They're irreconcilable. If God is holy and he's just and he's transcendent and yet he draws near sinner, how do those things... Have you ever thought about that? That's the mystery and the paradox of Christianity, isn't it? How can a holy God welcome a sinful human being, whether it's a child or an adult? How can that happen? Well, the Bible gives us the answer. Christianity has the answer. It's the cross. You say, what do you mean it's the cross? Well, the cross is the symbol for Christianity for a reason. Because Jesus came for one reason, the Bible says, to bring us back to God. He came to suffer and die on our behalf and to live a perfect, righteous life that we need, that God demands. So Jesus came and he went to the cross and that's where he satisfied God's justice towards sin and sinners. He satisfied it. That's why when Jesus was on the cross being crucified and the wrath of God, the anger of God towards sin was being poured out on him and Jesus died. You know what he said when he was dying? He said, it is finished. Tetelestai, one word in Greek. You know what that means? That means it's over. It's over. God's demand for justice has been completely satisfied because Jesus Christ absorbed all the wrath of the Father. And now because of that, we can draw near God through faith in Christ. We have to have faith in what Jesus did for us. That's what the cross means. That's what it represents. See, a lot of people misunderstand that. There was a guy working in my home the other day. He's in his mid-60s. Uh, he's, he's a carpenter, and he likes to talk a lot. And so we were in a conversation. And he said, you know, I'm, uh, I got some resolutions for this year. And he said, I'm in my 60s. You never know when your day is going to come up, and I know I'm going to stand before God one day. And I said, man, that's great. What are your resolutions? And he said, I've, I'm never going to miss church, ever. I'm not ever going to miss church. He said, and I haven't. All of 2018, I haven't missed one service. And he said, I tell my wife I love her every single day. Every single day I tell her that, because that's important, because God cares how we treat our spouse, he said. And he said, and the other thing is, I, I have made a vow to read my Bible every single day because, you know, God wrote the Bible, and I figure if I die and I stand before him and I don't know it, I'm in trouble. He said, so I'm thinking, finally, I got, I got something to offer to God. <clears throat> Excuse me, when I, when I stand in front of him, when I die, I've got all these resolutions. He actually said that. And I was like... <laughs> I'm so glad you're in my kitchen, man, and we got all kinds of time. I said, man, can I, can I offer you what I believe the Bible teaches about that? And he said, yeah. I said, it's not enough. He said, what do you mean? I said, your resolutions aren't enough, bro. They'll never be enough. He said, I, I, I'm not following you. And I said, well, God demands perfection, absolute, 100% flawless, impeccable perfection. And I said, are you perfect? Have you done that perfect? I mean, did you just start these resolutions? And he said, yeah, this year. I said, and you're in your 60s? He said, yeah. I said, what about all the rest of your life? He said, yeah, I really goofed. And I said, well, then it's over, dude. It's over. Because the, the, the law of God demands absolute perfection your entire life, from the moment you're born to the time you breathe your last. And he got this wild look in his eyes like, what are you talking about? I said, dude, but here's the good news, my friend. I said, Jesus lived a perfect life for you. 
So you don't have to offer God your resolutions. You can offer God the perfection and the righteousness of Jesus. When I stand before God, I'm not going to offer my flawed Bible reading, okay? Because that's what it is. It's flawed. I don't read my Bible enough. Nobody does. I mean, look at the Pharisees and the scribes. They had memorized the Torah. They had memorized the Old Testament scriptures. And God told them when Jesus came, he said, you've missed the whole point. You're reading Moses, and he talked about me. You've missed it. You've rejected the Messiah. So, yeah, I'm not going to offer God my resolutions. I'm going to stand before God, and if somebody says, why should God let you into heaven? I'm going to say, because of Jesus. Jesus died in my place. He died in my place. I have no claim. I have no claim on God. My plea is Jesusness. It's Jesusness. <laughs> my plea is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's my hope. You know, we sing songs about this at our church. My hope is built on nothing less than Schofield Notes and Moody Press. No, that's not what it says. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. So I want to ask you, children included, what are you hoping in and trusting in this morning? Is it your own obedience? Which, listen, obedience is important, but we don't obey God to be accepted by Him. We are already accepted by God through Jesus, and that fuels our desire to obey Him and to live a holy life, right? We're not working our way up to assurance. We have assurance in Christ when we trust Him and repent of our sin and ask God to forgive us. Then we have our assurance, and that fuels our obedience. So who are you trusting in today? Yourself? Your own flawed righteousness? Your own resolutions? I'm going to turn over a new leaf this year. That's great. You should do that, but don't trust in it. Because that's worthless when you stand before God and offer it. It's like trusting in a spider web to hold you up. It's not going to happen. So that's the message this morning. And listen, Jesus, this story is in the Bible to show you that God wants you. He cares about you. He welcomes you into his presence. And it's really interesting. Let me close with this. Let me close with this. If you have your Bibles open, I didn't put this. This is kind of an afterthought. But what's so interesting to me is the way the Holy Spirit arranged the Scripture. And the very next passage is a really strong contrast from what comes before. Because the disciples thought they were doing Jesus a favor by throwing up a barrier and keeping all these bothersome little kids away, right? They thought they were doing Jesus a favor because certainly Jesus wouldn't have time for children. Um, And they thought that children were an annoyance to him. But check this out. Look at the very next passage here. And wait, where am I? I'm in the wrong chapter. Hang on. So he took them in his arms, the children, blessed them, laying his hands on them. Now look at verse 17. And as Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And he said, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Liar. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Man, I'm glad that's in there. He loved him, and he said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, 
for he had great possessions. Now I want you to contrast these two things. Here's these little pesky kids wanting to get to Jesus and the disciples say, you can't. He doesn't have time for you. He doesn't like people like you, right? And then the very next passage, here's this wealthy, important, religious ruler that comes to Jesus. Now in your mind, can you see the disciples' reaction to him? Oh, VIP, come on, he's right up here. He's been waiting on you. Jesus will see you right now. I think there's some kids up there. We'll scatter them. Look how Jesus turns cultural expectations on its head, right? Because wealthy people that were rulers and had authority, they were important back then. But children, not so important. Jesus did that all the time. He did that all the time. Because listen, we don't let culture dictate to us the way we're supposed to view people. We're supposed to let God do that. And Jesus came for the broken, for the outcast, for the societal rejects, for the marginalized, for the people that were abused, for the people that were hurt, for the people that were victims of religion, unfortunately. Jesus had time for them. And look at the difference here. The children went away super blessed, right? And the rich young ruler went away, the Bible says, disheartened because he had many possessions. And what do you think he was trusting in? His possessions. And Jesus said, you got to give it up. That's not to say you get to heaven by giving up all you have, but Jesus knew their heart. He knew that man's heart. And he said, you're holding on to your riches, you know, and it's going to keep you out of the kingdom of heaven. So I want to close with that. Look at the contrast. Rich young ruler went away sorrowful, disheartened. And these children who went away super blessed because Jesus loved them unconditionally. And listen, he still does. Jesus loves the little children, and we should too. This has implications for us at our church, in our home. But the principle behind this is the kingdom of heaven is, is built on this truth. The people who are dependent on God and who expect to be received by God because of Jesus, those are the people that are going to find themselves in the kingdom. Are you one of them? Or are you pretending? Let's pray.